Turn in the Word of God, if you would, beloved, to Hebrews 11. This is not part of the series, just FYI, but it's where the Lord has directed me for today, in light of our day of prayer. We had mentioned in my prayer of, of Dr. McClelland, again, known to many of you, uh, the pastor of the first Free Presbyterian Church in North America, up in Toronto, and he had a, a, a stroke this past week. Uh, it seems to not be a major one, but he has some uh, paralysis and some loss of memory. So if you can remember him and his wife and family. passing of the generations is a reality we can't escape. And it ought to be to our edification, to our challenge when, especially when we remember or we see the demise of, of those who have so evidently lived a life sold out for Christ. Their life then causes us to ask the question, what am I doing with my life? So I'm going to read with you Hebrews 11, read the opening seven verses. Hebrews 11 verse 1, let's hear the word of the Lord. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony, that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Amen. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. Let's pray, beloved. Let's again just take these moments to ask that this time in the word is more than just something that instructs our minds where God meets with us and deals with us. God, that is our prayer. I ask that thou wilt deal with me. There is work yet to be done in this heart of mine. There is more carnality to be conquered, more sin to be subdued. Oh God, I pray, come. Come not only to me, but to us all, 
May today be as was in Cornelius' household when Peter preached, the Spirit fell on all them that heard the word. It is for that very thing we pray. Whatever that looks like, however that may be manifested in our own hearts, dealing with us as individuals, dealing with us as a collective people. Come, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Better is a dry morsel and quietness therewith than a house full of sacrifices with strife. Proverbs 17, verse 1. When given the choice between those two, the wise man will take a dry morsel and quietness over a feast amidst strife. He recognizes the value of quietness, even if what he's eating isn't the greatest delicacy that could be put before him. But even though that be the case, no one will choose to live their entire existence on dry bread when they know that they can taste something better. Is a man who lives on dry bread expected to be satisfied with it in the sense that he never craves anything more? Should he be blamed to desire an improvement for himself and those he loves? Maybe say this, that the image does it not translate something spiritually for us when we consider it? For example, would Simeon and Anna, with their long and dry years in the temple, would they not delight in the Pentecost that came? Would they not rejoice in the fullness of God's power and blessing in those years that followed? By the same token, would martyrs in a time of a false dawn, like we considered in the last couple of weeks with Wycliffe, Wycliffe, would they despise the full break of day upon the nation such as came in the Protestant Reformation? Of course not. And in a similar fashion, is a man to be faulted for wanting a fuller manifestation of the Spirit's power and blessing upon the church in our day? Are we to be faulted for wanting more? I read Proverbs 17 verse 1 yesterday. And I said to myself, that's our prayer meeting right there. That's our prayer meeting. I don't think Solomon had prayer meetings in mind when he penned Proverbs 17 verse 1. But that's what I thought to myself. In one sense, I, I appreciate the dry morsel with quietness. It's a good thing. A little bit that is there to be enjoyed But is that all we are to aspire to? Are we to say that this is all there is? How do you move away from dry bread? How is it that amidst the quietness 
you may gain something of a feast to be enjoyed spiritually. The first and primary way, I think, is that you cannot be content simply with the dry morsel. You can't simply say to yourself, this is all there is, and accept it. Jesus says, if a son asks bread, he'll get it. And the same if he asks for fish or an egg. The Father will answer. He will grant. He will give. And yet that instruction, if you cast your mind back to Luke 11, where he talks about that, it is in a context in which he deals with one particular exercise, or maybe a better word is attitude, or frame of mind and heart. He deals with the man who shows importunity, doesn't he? Before he gets to the asking, there is this spirit in the man where he can be described as showing importunity. He shows heart, he shows zeal, he shows earnestness, he shows grit, he shows determination. He will not be satisfied with someone saying no. He will keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking until the response is, I will give you whatever you ask, even more. As much as you need, I think, is the, the language, as much as he needeth. We are to be men who seek God, to use the language of Hebrews 11, verse 6, to recognize that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. He rewards them that diligently seek Him. He comes to those that diligently seek Him. Now, the immediate example that follows that statement is perhaps not one we would have put in. It is Noah. Noah follows such a statement. And I think it right to say that Noah then fits the model that he understood without faith you can't please God and that those that come to God must believe that he is and he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Noah sought God. His life was governed by this attitude. And so, like Enoch, of whom the Spirit records he walked with God, so the same is said of Noah. And Noah becomes the first person in this tremendous chapter whose activity is largely based, really, upon what he believed about the future. He is, he is governed with something God has told him about the future. The others are governed, too, by faith, of course, but, but Noah was told something about what is to come, and that governed him. And it governed his life in a, in a very particular way. Look at verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. He moved. 
I'm taking that word because that struck me earlier last week I was reading this. This idea of, of, being, of being sent into action, being brought into motion. That Noah's walk with God and the revelation given to him resulted in him moving. Resulted in him not just staying where he was, but moving. And that's, that was a word to my own soul. That there's a need, there's a need. For us to hear from God a word that will move us. And so I've titled my message simply, <laughs> in a very terse way, Move it, Christian. Move it, Christian. There's some of you need to move. You need to move from where you are. And I hope that as we progress through the message that you will sense what God is saying particularly to you because I don't know where you are. And I don't know what's going on in your heart. And I don't know exactly what it is that may be holding you back. Now, if you are in, let's say, a period of your life where there's momentum and you are moving and you feel that you're progressing and that you're going on with God, praise Him. Just ask for more. Please, Lord, sustain it. Get the winds in my sails. Keep me propelled forward. But if you feel like the, the winds, as it were, to use that illustration, have died down or that though the winds may be blowing, the sail isn't up, then, then it's time to move, isn't it? There's a need to move. And so that is what I want us to consider here because our day of prayer essentially is an opportunity not just where we come to God asking Him to move, but where we move, isn't it? As soon as you say, I'm going to get to prayer, you are moving and you're coming to God with a desire that He would move. And this is what men have found through the generations, they have found that as they have moved toward God, God has moved toward them. Now, I know theologically that we are made willing in the day of His power. I know that God is the first cause of everything. I know all of that. I get it. And yet it is distinct in the Word of God that He expects from His people that they respond to His Word, that His Word will be an initiating force in their hearts to move them. And so if they find themselves in a backslidden state, there's language there that should call them to repentance, move them into a frame of repentance. If they find themselves in a state of great sin, that again, there's this deepening work where the Word calls them to confess their sins because He is faithful and just to forgive their sins. Well, as we consider Noah then in this message to this morning. First note with me, well, let, let me give you the three headings that will guide our thoughts. First, excuses we should not use, revelation we cannot ignore, and testimony we all want to receive. That will guide our, our thoughts here today. So first, excuses we should not use. Because as we look at Noah, he helps eliminate some excuses that we might have in, let's say, being hesitant 
to move or resistant to moving. The first of these is, we might say, a lack of former example. We might use the excuse, a lack of former example, that I am not going to move to where I need to be or where the preacher is saying or where some other prophetic voice, as it were, in a book or in the past, what it is saying to me, I am, I am, I'm not able to do that because I don't understand or I don't, haven't experienced what it is that they're speaking of. We are told of Noah that he was warned of God of things not seen as yet. Warned of God of things not seen as yet. Now, we, we understand the importance of experience, don't we? I mean, business understands that. Experience, necessary. It's sometimes there on the job application. Schools understand this when they're hiring certain positions of teaching, that experience is necessary, certainly desirable. We understand this even when, when sports teams are, are hiring and so on and bringing in all other players. They're looking at the experience of the player and what they can contribute because their experience will, will have an influence on the team. Often whenever you get a coach who's really pushing for that, uh, you know, whatever the top prize is within the realm of that sport, he will, he will try to make some key purchases of people who have a winning mentality already proven. The experience counts because when it comes to crunch time and those, those last minutes and those, those important games and so on, there's a certain mentality. And those who have been there already and have proven it, have proven themselves to have what many don't have. And so that experience is invaluable. However, Noah is warned of something never before seen. He has to move into action being given a word that he couldn't visualize, he couldn't see, he couldn't fully comprehend, at least in the sense of, I've seen this before. Now, some are dogmatic that this text, along with others, argues that there was no rain before the flood. I'm not sure you have to take that view. I'll just say that, and that's not the subject matter for today. At the, at the very least, at the very least, we'll say this. This text addresses the fact that there had never been what God was telling Noah was going to happen. A catastrophic global flood, right? There had never been that. Or it may be in terms of a global judgment. There had never been any ex exhibition of God of, of global judgment, right? So whether you take the view that there was never rain or you take the view that there was rain, there was never on this scale, whatever the case, it doesn't matter. The world had never seen this. That's the point. And so Noah had no experience of what was revealed to him. And yet the lack of personal experience of what was coming was not an excuse. He still moved. He moved. His life became governed by this revelation, this understanding of God's judgment on sin and what is about to unfold moved him. Now the real... The reason why this is relevant is because we have been given a similar revelation. Go to Revelation 20, right to the last book of the Bible. When you study God's Word, you will discover that the flood itself is a sort of pledge of what God does how he acts upon sin. 
that it is no light matter. And we are given revelation of what judgment is still to come. And Revelation 20, for one example, Revelation 20, verse 12. Here it is. For every believer given by the Holy Spirit, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. I want you to imagine that God is opening up a revelation to you here, just as He did to Noah, where He saw men, the small and great, before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Here's the point. You have very clearly revelation of coming judgment. So when you read that Noah being warned of God moved, you can put yourself right in his shoes because you've been warned of God. You and I have been warned of God. Of things not seen as yet. We have not seen judgment on this scale. We have not witnessed what John reveals here in John 20. The, the Holy Spirit is revealing to us that which we have never, ever witnessed. And yet, we find ourselves perhaps thinking, well, because we can't see it, we can't understand it, it doesn't really influence me. Maybe we should give some time to ponder it the way Noah pondered it. The way Noah undoubtedly gave consideration to what it would be like for the world to be devastated by water and every inch of the globe to be covered with it. In some ways there are many parallels. For Noah, the flood, the flood was like a little window into hell itself. It had to have been. When the water started to come down and started to overflow and rise up upon all the lands, and, and, and the shrieks and the screams of men and women fighting for their lives, scratching on the side of the ark, longing for deliverance. It had to be in that some picture of the very horrors of hell itself, the hopelessness of it. So Noah was warned, and he moved, and we've been warned. My point is, then, we ought to move. We are told by our Lord Jesus Christ that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. This should move us. Jesus, Jesus speaks this, not so we say, well, very interesting, Jesus. It's very particular, this judgment, isn't it? It's very particular, every idle word. Nothing's going to be missed. Everything is going to be brought forth. That's not just a matter of interest. For Noah, information like that moved him. He was moved. It brought out a response from him. This very book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 27, that is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Now we have, again, explicit encouragement from Peter in 2 Peter 3 in how 
the return of Christ and the judgment that comes with that ought to affect us. 2 Peter 3 verse 10, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Peter says this should change. This should, this should affect their sanctification. The thought, the consideration should produce holiness. John says the same thing in 1 John 3. He says the same thing. He talks about, beloved, what, about the, this knowledge we have of Christ's return, where it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man, I was trying to find it there in my head, and every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. He's moved. It affects his life. And yet, we have these, this information. We have far more detail, which brings me then to my second sub-point, a lack of full understanding. This is not an excuse. We, 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 we cannot say we lack a former example, because we do. We have a former example in the flood. And we can't say we lack a full understanding, because we have. We have a full understanding. Noah lived in a time when what he knew was passed down orally and through unrepeatable moments of special revelation. And both of those can be contrasted with our own setting. We have the example of global judgment. He didn't have that. We have the full canon of Scripture giving us repeatable encounters with God's revealed truth. We can keep going back to it and reading it and understanding it. And even if, and I think there could be an argument that it's acknowledged there are future judgments coming which we have not seen, we're still without excuse. Because we've, we've had so much revelation given to us, so much insight, far more than Noah had. And so when we say, well, I don't fully understand what's to come, therefore it doesn't influence me, all that reveals is unbelief. It's not that the Bible's not clear that there's a day of judgment coming. It's very clear. So, therefore, it's, it's not the lack of information you have. It's the lack of faith. You don't trust God. You don't take Him at His word. It should move us. If you're, if you're back in Hebrews, just flip over to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 25. We're again warned here. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. Don't turn away from the one who reveals truth to you. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Yes. There's no escape for us. We, we have he has spoken, and we are to be moved by it. Also, a third excuse is a lack of fraternal support. You might say that, well, I lack support. No brothers are with me. 
the world is, is not standing with me. Well, was no any different. I mean, long before William Randolph Hearst and his sensational headlines and yellow journalism, it could have been pinned upon Noah. Noah, you're just a sensationalist. You're a dreamer trying to upset the peace of everyone with your big claims about what's coming and so on. He had little support. People were not with him. And I have no doubt they just saw him as a man with a vivid imagination trying to cause anxiety among the people. But Noah didn't flinch. Didn't flinch. He moved. He moved in obedience to God, didn't he? He moved in obedience. How come, in light of what we have in God's Word and what is revealed to us, that you and I do not move really in a way that with evidence we believe what God has said is coming. Because I don't know about you, but I think I, think I, have, to, I have to be honest and say, I, 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 I do not, my assessment of my life does not reveal to me sufficient evidence that I really believe there's this horrific judgment coming upon the world. And so I asked myself the question, well, what's the excuse? Because you've never seen anything like that before? Neither had not. Is it because you lack understanding? I can't say that. The Bible is clear. It has, is filled. The pages are filled with language of judgment to come. And I say there's a lack of support, even if that was the case. I'm not as lonely as Noah. So, so we, 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 we don't understand. Now, I, I, I was thinking to myself, <laughs> what might move people today? What, what, what message of impending doom might move people today? Let's say the president was to get up and say, the financial institutions and the banking system is teetering on the brink of collapse. I call for all men everywhere to go to their churches and to pray. I, I, think, I think quite a few people would respond to that. I, th I think they would. A message of impending doom regarding financial systems. And we'd get up out of our recliners and get to a place of prayer. But the genuine believer, the one who knows God, the one who walks in the same Footsteps of faith as Noah. Is he not to say that I feel as Noah felt? Are we not to move as Noah moved? You see these massive events. You see these, <laughs> let's just call them, without naming names, political rallies. And Christians go out en masse. And, and I, I, my mind goes, I said, okay, if, there, if your church was to call a prayer meeting, would you be there? Would you? And you go out for this big cause, and you wave your flags, and you wear your hats and t-shirts, and you're, you're just rallying around this. 
But go to the lowly prayer meeting. Just, just go to the lowly prayer meeting. You, you won't have to fight traffic. You won't be trampled on. It won't be hot and sweaty and so on. And, <laughs> and you can come and, and not meet with some big name, but meet with the King of Kings. But we're not moved. Now, if you are, I thank God for you. If, if, if you're someone who's a preacher, I get it. <laughs> I get the sentiment. I'm right there with you. Then, good. And you're at the prayer meeting and you seek the Lord. But, but if you're not, the question comes back. What, what, what faith do we hold to? What revelation do we believe? Is it God's or is it man's? It brings us secondly then to revelation we cannot ignore. Excuses we should not use. Revelation we cannot ignore. In Hebrews 1, we're told that God used to speak to his prophets in various ways. And Noah, Noah knew about the flood, I think, through various ways. I, I, I think we can say that because the flood had been revealed before Noah. Enoch understood the flood was coming. That's why he called his son Methuselah. And I'm not going to get into that, but that compound word of his name, meaning death and sin, communicates that when he dies, it shall be sent. That's Methuselah lived his life. The man who lived longer than anyone else, showing the mercy of God, it's amazing. Every time I think of it, the man who lived longer than anyone else was designated a name that when he dies, it shall be sent. So any moment he could have died, and yet God caused him to live longer than any man ever on the earth. But he dies the year the flood comes. So he would have known that. Noah would have known that. He would have been aware of that. But he also receives direct revelation from God. We know that from, from Genesis 6 as well. So he is warned of God. He is warned of God. Various ways he is warned of God. This word that is used here in uh, Hebrews eleven seven is the same word used to describe the warning of the wise men not to return to Herod. In that same chapter in Matthew 2, it's also used concerning uh, Joseph, that he, he's warned not to go to Judea, ends up going to Galilee. So God comes and he warns. Now think of two things here, the timing of it and the response to it, the timing of it. Go to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Do you see the timing of God's revelation to Noah? These are familiar verses to many, I'm sure. Matthew 24, verse, read verse 36. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So it is described here, not that there is some inherent wickedness in marrying and eating and drinking and so on, because Noah and his wife would eat and drink and his sons 
and their wives would eat and drink, generally speaking, just thinking generally. And, and they were married. They were all married. Noah was married. His sons were married. So they, were, they, were, they did this in, in a sense of the, the, the simplicity of the expression, the most basic aspect of it. But that's not what the Lord Jesus is saying. That simply they were doing these normal things. They, 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 were, they were doing these normal things with, with no consideration of what God was saying through his prophet. It was all they were doing. They weren't making preparation. They weren't responding to the message. So the preacher is heralding this message of judgment and they just sit off. They plan their big fancy weddings and they, they go and engage in it and they say, ah, no. <laughs> they scoff at them and they eat and they drink and they have their feasts and everything. There are all these celebrations with no sense of sobriety. There's no, there's no, it's not tinged with any sense of impending judgment. There was no moderation in life's comforts. There was no consideration of God's word. There was no consecration to kingdom work. And is that not the same today? During a time of opportunity to build on the work of others, the world was marked with complacency. God's threatening to destroy the entire world. In other words, everything that man had built, everything that man had achieved, God's about to just do a great reset, if I may use the term. A great reset, right? And no one's listening. No one's paying attention. They should be repenting. They should be building on the good work, whatever the good work was that Adam and those after him had accomplished, they should be building on that. But they weren't. They were just, as I say, marked by complacency. And I wonder the same about our own day. We, we, have, we have things to build on right now. We do. America has things to build on. There, our forefathers have, have built things we are to enter into their labors. We are to continue on the cause. And we, we are, because of our complacency, we are in danger of it all being destroyed and it will need to be rebuilt should our Savior tarry. Don't, don't, don't get too big for your boots. It's happened to other nations, right? It's happened to other nations. They have had, I mean, just, just look, just one example. Just... Study the history of North Africa and the Christian influence in North Africa and then compare it to today. North Africa was abounding with rich heritage. God's word. Great churches and great preachers. Not today. Why? They got complacent. They wouldn't listen to God. They had no consideration of, of judgment, of warning. They thought it would continue until God used vicious enemies to come and devastate it so that it's unrecognizable today. It can happen. It can happen right here. It can. The question is, will it happen in our day? Will it happen because of our day? Noah's faith then, because he moved with fear, was a testimony against everyone else. It exposed the unbelief of others who did not act as he did. 
Lenski, in his commentary, says, quote, God delayed the flood for 120 years for the very purpose of giving the world of men time to repent and to believe Noah's preaching. The thought was not that they too might build arks, but that God might withhold the flood, end quote. Lenski, in other words, sees the preaching of, of Noah like to the preaching of Jonah. Jonah comes and says, in 40 days, the city's going to be destroyed. What does the city do? It repents, and judgment is withheld. Lenski says that that's, that's, that was the point of Noah's preaching in the building of the ark. The building of the ark prepared Noah and his family and those who would listen, but it also stood as a monument of the seriousness of what was going on. And if the people would repent, then judgment may be withheld. And so Nineveh will rise up in judgment against that generation because they didn't repent. But will it rise up in judgment against us? Noah lived in a time where people were complacent, where they wouldn't listen to messages of judgment, where they would silence such voices, where they would say, calm down, preacher, don't be so serious, lighten up, things are good. That's the day he lived in. Don't disrupt the, the wedding plans with messages of judgment. <laughs> Lighten up, Noah. Lighten up. Noah, we've heard it before. Enough already. That was the timing. And it feels very similar to our own day. I don't know where we are in the calendar of things to unfold. But the days of Noah are very much marking our own, at least in this part of the world. That should be a warning to us. The response to it. What was Noah's response? Well, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, he moved with fear and prepared an ark to the saving of his house. He responded. See, Noah understood that his chief end was to glorify God. And he knew that God is glorified when he is loved, and he is loved when he is obeyed. God needs to be obeyed. He does. And this is explicitly stated regarding Abraham, verse 8, where it says that he obeyed. God's call to him caused him to obey. Faith then works. It reflects obedience. God's revelation to Noah included details of the ark, but it also included the reason why the ark was necessary. Judgment is coming, and so he moves with fear. He moves with fear. Why fear? <laughs> That's a word we don't like. But he moved with fear. What was he afraid of? What, what was, what's this fear? Was he afraid of the flood? Was he afraid of losing his own life? Was he afraid of what might happen to his family? Some of those may bear a measure of weight, but that's not really the fear that the Spirit is pointing out here. The Spirit points out this, what we might term a reverential awe of God. A pious care. A reverent circumspection, let's say. 
God is communicating this. And it was produced then. How, how was the fear produced? It wasn't produced by the message of judgment. It was in response to the message of judgment. What I mean is, the fear rules out of a living faith he already had in the promised Christ. He had a living faith in the promised deliverer and that living faith took this message. A message from the same one who had given him promises and hope of righteousness by faith alone. Noah had latched on to that. We, we, we know that. He had latched on to that. I can obtain righteousness by faith. He is surrounded by a world full of sin, but he can obtain righteousness by faith. But that same God is, is giving a message of judgment. And he responds. It's the same faith that's responding. And it caused him to be moved in this sense of reverence. Sobriety. God is a consuming fire. He's not to be trifled with. And you can, you can see this. If you, if, you, if you go back to chapter 10 of Hebrews, you, I want you to see the context of, of what the book of Hebrews deals with. It warns of real judgment to the church. We've been seeing this over the recent months. Let's read from verse we can read from verse 26, Hebrews 10, 26. If we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? What do you think is going to happen to people who have the Word, have responded to the Word, have exercised some outward expression of faith in the Word, in the Savior, and then proceed to live in disobedience against the God who promised salvation to them. This is the warning. This is spoken to a, a, a body like this, people who know. This isn't for those people who have never heard the gospel. Verse 30, we know him that hath said, vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. That, that text is one of the most horrifying I've ever come across in all my reading of the Word. It's taken straight from the Old Testament. The Lord shall judge His people. And it's applied in the New Covenant era. Supplied, right? People who claim to be His. He's going to judge them. This is, this is language of warning, is it not? I mean, the Apostle's not messing around here. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Call to remembrance of former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions. He's calling them to remember other times when they, when they understood what it meant to be a believer, to suffer 
for the cause of Christ. So, go down to the last two verses. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. That is his hope for them, as it is my hope for you. But they will be moved. They'll be moved. You think of Paul, and when he writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. There's a man like Noah who, who moved with fear. He understood the terror of the Lord. And so Noah went out every day and obeyed, lived with this sense of this sober coming, the sobering effect of the coming judgment. And every tree he chopped down was obedience. And every joint he connected was love. And all the pitch he applied was evidence of faith in action. And beloved, we are not called to build an ark, are we? No, we're not. But <laughs> if you're not a preacher, you are to be a prayer, aren't you? If you're not called to stand on the streets and deliver the gospel in a public fashion, you are at the very least called to move in the place of prayer, to intercede. I think Anna understood that, didn't she? Anna understood that. She understood, I'm not a preacher, I'm not a priest, I can't, I can't do that kind of ministry, but I can go every day to the temple, and I can make prayers, and I can fast, and I can weep over this generation, and pray for the coming Messiah, and pray for the illumination of Israel. That's obedience. That's obedience. The Christian obeys. He obeys to the measure that he can. According to his context, in light of judgment, he obeys. And I'll tell you, beloved, more obedience is the need of the hour. It is. We come to the place of prayer. I think we are a people who, who are, are, we have this, this, this spiritual malady caused by compromises in our hearts. I think that can say that generally. There may be some exceptions. But disobedience causes us to limp in prayer. It makes us sickly and timid. And that's what I feel in our prayer meetings largely. There's a sickliness, there's a timidity. timidity. We, just, we just aren't in that place. Think, think of what John writes in 1 John 3, 22. Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. I mean, I mean do, do we believe that? Do we? Maybe the reason we don't believe it is because we have suppressed, we have... A, we have, how can I, we're not putting the fuel on the fire. Obedience fuels the fires of believing prayer. It does. Not in the sense that we earn it. That's not what I mean. But God delights in obedience. He does. He does. And to the obedient, He blesses. The Holy Spirit is given to them that obey Him. And so we, we see the scriptural testimony of those who, who did good. And they're called out for being good and being righteous and being obedient. And it's, we can look at it purely in the doctrinal way and say, well, they had it in pure righteousness. But that the emphasis of the text, the emphasis of the text isn't on that. The emphasis of the text is that their impudent righteousness led to a practical outworking of obedience. That's the emphasis of the text and don't miss it. Because that's really, that's really what you have in Hebrews 11. You have an evangelical faith that is producing 
unusual living in obedience. Abraham obeyed, not knowing where he was going. His faith caused him to obey God. Faith produces obedience or there is no faith. So Noah's faith in God made him take seriously a message of judgment and then he, he moved. He moved. And I have to believe he was a man of prayer because he's the one that's given right after verse 6. He was a man who diligently sought God. And he understood that whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Pleasing in his sight. Is John mocking us? Is John mocking us? Is John saying you can do those, th- well, you can't really do those things that are pleasing in his sight. You can't do it. Is that what John's saying? Is John saying that the depravity of the nature is such that the grace of conversion and the power of the Spirit makes it impossible to do those things that are pleasing in God's sight? Is that where our theology has brought us? Because if it is, then we've gotten very unbiblical. Because right here in 1 John 3, 22, it says that we can do those things that are pleasing in God's sight. And when we do that, <laughs> when we are there, whatsoever we ask of, we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. I can't miss the cause and effect there. Can you? Can you? So we come thinking we'll just offer a few prayers, but the life doesn't matter. And that is, that is where the breakthrough needs to come. I think in my heart and yours, the breakthrough needs to come in this real seriousness about being obedient to God in every area. No, no reservations, no holding back, no negotiations. This, this is all out. I am, I'm, I'm, I'm starting again. What would it be to be a full blown, obedient servant of God. What would that look like? Spurgeon, I was reading him. He says, that faith which believes in the probable is anybody's faith. Publicans and sinners can so believe. The faith which believes that which is barely possible is in better form. But that faith which cares nothing for probability or possibility, but rests alone in the word of the Lord is the faith of God's elect. God deserves such faith, for without God, all things, for with God, all things are possible. Not probability, but certainty is the groundwork of faith when God has spoken. Which brings me then, and my time is gone, so I'm just literally going to mention it. The testimony we all want to receive. What's the testimony that we want to receive? Well, God favored Noah, didn't he? He needed righteousness by faith. He, he, he had that. He had that righteousness obtained by faith. And he continued in it and exhibited it clearly. Without that, it doesn't matter what, we, what pious endeavors we give ourselves to. We forget it all. God favored him. Secondly, family followed him. God favored him. Family followed him. There's no doubt that what Noah did was primarily in obedience to God. But secondarily, it was for the benefit of his family. That's what the text says, isn't it? Prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Some of you need that. Spiritually, not all of his sons were where they needed to be. We find that out later, don't we? With Ham. Noah was like Job. He prayed for his family. And when he told them of judgment, they listened to him. It wasn't like Lot, where his sons-in-law 
he sinned as one that mocked. No, they, they, they listened to Noah. They got on that ark. So what's, what's the point? <laughs> move it, Christian. Move it. Your faith should make you move. It has to. It has to make you move. Judgment is coming. Look at the state of our world. Look at what you're seeing in the headlines. Look at the devastation, the destruction. Where, where it's, not, it's not just that we're dealing with corruption and we're dealing with blatant wickedness and sin. They're changing the rules of the discussion. Right? Rules are being changed. Understood grounds of logic and reason are being tipped on their heads so that you can't even make any sense to the current generation, at least in some parts. Change the rules, control the outcome. And what's the answer? Need a different president. No. No, it's to move. Being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear. Move it, Christian. Prepare your ark. Live your life. Live out your faith. There's so much more I wanted to say, but I will leave it there. May God help us. Let's bow together in prayer. The Lord is, is gracious. He could have destroyed Noah with everyone else, but he didn't. And he could have destroyed us and caused us to be enslaved by our sin like so many others in our generation, but he hasn't. He has brought to us the light of the gospel. The question then we should be asking ourselves is what does he expect me to do with this? What is my responsibility given the fact that God has revealed to me what he is going to do to this world? At the very least, we can pray. Lord, help us. We feel our weakness. And even the moments where there may be flurries of zeal and passion It fades so quickly. So we acknowledge today the need for something more than just an exhortation from the Word, but a renovation by the Spirit. Oh God, work in our hearts. Hear us, give us a season of prayer today marked by the hand of God, led by the Spirit. May we know help and sanctify our conversation in the interim. Hear and answer us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.